0: You know those times when you're like working out hard or you're maybe out doing some yard work or you've had to do a lot of heavy lifting at work. And you've spent the whole day carting your kids around and you're kind of really tired and you need a little bit of refreshment. And You got this idea that, you know, a nice ice cold Coke or Dr. Pepper or Mountain Dew, man, that is that would just hit the spot. If I could just have one of those. And so you get this idea and lo and behold, you find one of these. And I'm sure some of you have had this experience. Maybe several times in your life, some of you, this is more than once a day kind of occasion, you actually get one of these. And what do you do? You have it, and if you're going to taste it, you have to open it, right? And so you do. You just, you have this. It's really not fair for me to do this in front of you, right? But you you have it, and like, whoa, right there, and and you, and you hear all those little carbonated bubbles. You hear that? And they're all just kind of speaking your name, like, drink me, drink me, right? You know? And so you do. You're like, Boy, that ooh, that is good right I'm sorry you'll have to get yours after service here but I've got mine right here you get you have that first taste and what it does is it it leaves you thirsting for more doesn't it you 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 never like have one sip and set it down and forget about it right no you just keep going after because that first initial taste creates in you a desire to have more that's true of ice cold coca-cola but that's especially true when you come to the Bible, especially the book that we're looking at, 2 Timothy. You have in an introductory two verses, you have this introduction of the promise of life. It's like you taste it and you want more. And so let's take a look at it, 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. We have in this final letter written by the Apostle Paul about A.D. 67, he is in a Roman jail, a prison. He knows that he is quickly going to face a judgment and an execution. It's highly unlikely, even though he's been in prison before, that he's getting out this time. And he's writing to his young protege, a man by the name of Timothy. Someone he shared a deep friendship and, and involvement in many years of ministry together. He's writing what is most important to life. We could call it the masterpiece of classic Christianity. We know it better as Second Timothy. And really, to understand this letter and the impact And what it means to have and to know the promise of life in Christ Jesus, you have to know a little bit of the background and the events that are taking place when this letter is written. If you've ever studied uh, world history, you know that at this time there is a man in power in Rome by the name of Nero. Certainly you've heard of him. Let me give you a little background. He's Rome's... Emperor. His reign begins in AD 54. Nero is a 17-year-old young man, and all of a sudden now he finds himself to be the leader, the emperor of Rome. And for the first few years of his reign, it looked as if he was going to be an outstanding leader. There was relative peace, there looked to be a bright future, and it looked as if Nero would certainly be the kind of leader that would allow Rome to continue to emerge as this shining beacon of an empire, even though they dominated the people that they are around. But things get rather complicated, and life gets twisted when you think of yourself as a little G-O-D, a god. And that was certainly the case for Nero. We know that Nero married four different times. He had numerous mistresses. And his life becomes complicated more so when all of a sudden, now the legions of Rome are actually getting beat. And there were struggles, and and Rome could not quell revolts in Britain, and in Gaul, and in Spain. And all of this twisting and this narcissism that exists in Nero suddenly makes him become more and more brutal and ruthless. To give you some examples of of Nero and how twisted this man became. He had his own mother killed. And then some of his chief advisors, specifically Seneca and Burrus, men that he truly esteemed and seemed to really value their opinions, who these guys were actually trying to be helpful to him, he had them executed as well. And then because he needed more and more income to support his life habits and he actually then started having some of his, the nobility killed, and he seized their fortunes. There were no checks and balances for this paranoid man and his egocentric tendencies. He also then had this just quest to be so well-liked, and he wanted publicity. And so he did things that pushed him to excessive acts of decadence, chariot races that oftentimes led to the death of those who were riding in the chariots. Combat between gladiators became very common. And there was the gory spectacle of prisoners thrown to wild beasts. This was all something that Nero cultivated. But there is an event that takes place in Rome in AD 64, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, that really, in church history, begins to change everything for those who are these followers of the way, these followers of Jesus. In AD 64, there is a Rome, there's a fire in Rome that destroys the city. Many people believe that it was actually Nero himself that gave the orders to burn the city because they knew of his strong desire that he wanted to establish this massive palatial palace and to have it dedicated to himself. But in order to do that, he'd have to wipe out some of the structures that were already there. And so... There came this idea that really, Rome is burning because Nero had it set on fire. Well, this is not exactly what Nero had in mind. And so Nero needed a scapegoat. Someone to blame for this fire. And there was this... They considered it like the sect of, of Judaism. These people of the way, these followers of this Jesus of Nazareth, who they would not bow down and worship Nero as a god... They seem to be convinced that this Jesus, that he's like Lord, that he he actually was crucified. The Romans put him to death. But they could not get over the widespread belief that this Jesus came back to life three days later. And he appeared to apostles. They appeared to these followers. And they were convinced that Jesus is Lord. And so because they wouldn't bow down to Nero, and they were a growing sect, that seemed to have such a passion for this Jesus, he identified this minority religion, Christianity, those followers of Christ, as the ones who had set the fire. And so became this terrible persecution of the early church. It was filled with torture, executions, and Christians became Colosseum entertainment. To understand the times in which Paul is languishing in prison, A.D. 67, I'd like to read you an excerpt from a guy by the name of Tacitus. He is a first century Roman senator and historian who wrote of the persecution of these followers of the way, these early Christians, quote, their death was made a matter of sport. They were covered in wild beast skins and "...torn to pieces by dogs, or were fastened to crosses and set on fire in order to serve as torches by night. Nero had offered his gardens for the spectacle, and gave an exhibition in his circus, mingling with the crowd in the guise of a charioteer, or mounted on his chariot. Hence, there arose a feeling of pity, because it was felt that they were being sacrificed not for the common good." But to gratify the savagery of one man. It's in this environment, in the city of Rome, where Paul is a prisoner, that God has, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul write one more letter. A deeply personal letter to his friend, fellow comrade, this pastor in the city of Ephesus. A difficult city to minister to this friend, Timothy. It's really interesting. Uh, Church history holds that the Apostle Paul is executed uh, outside of Rome uh, on the Ostian Way in AD 67. Shortly after the Apostle Paul's death, Nero commits suicide. He does this because the Roman Senate is now declaring Nero and all of his atrocities and all of his wild behavior And all the people that he he just had killed at will, they are accusing him of being an enemy of the people. And so Nero commits suicide. And so it's in this environment, in these times, where Nero was reigning ruthlessly, that Paul writes to his very close friend. A man that he shared a lot of life experiences, ministry, uh, going through hardships, difficulty, walking together being together, caring for one another, supporting each other in all the trials of life. And it's, it's something that you and I know. When you know that death is imminent, you listen co- closely to what that person has to say. You want to know where do you find hope when you face death. And that's what you have in this book, Second Timothy. Second Timothy, we could call a masterpiece of classic Christianity. And the two verses that get it started, this introduction, did you notice one phrase that appears three times in two verses? Did anybody notice it? Did anybody see it? Let me see in case you missed it. Let me point it out to you. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and... Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, even in the face of death, we have the promise of life, but it is found in Christ Jesus. How does the promise of life in Jesus really transform an individual? I mean, how can you be so certain that you have life and life eternal when faced with death, when you are actually being persecuted and imprisoned for your faith? When you say, here's my life, Lord, as you just sang, what is the promise of life that Christ offers his people? And how does that really transform us? You know, in this introduction, I don't want you to miss it. He actually shows you three ways the promise of life transforms us. The first thing I want to point out is the promise of life in Christ transforms how we see our role. You see that in verse 1? Paul identifies himself and he says he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now this, to be an apostle, this is an an official office. An apostle of Christ Jesus was one that was officially commissioned to represent him and the establishment of the church. There were two major qualifications to be an apostle. You didn't just kind of look on a job board and like, whoa, apostle Jesus, think I'll try that out. No, two things had to happen. One, you had to have actually seen the risen Lord. You had to have a time where you saw, and there was a physical appearance of Christ to you, where he meets you. The second is, you actually had to then been selected and sent by him to represent him in an official capacity. And these things were true in Paul. And it's interesting, Timothy knows that Paul is an apostle, right? He knows him really well. But Paul knows that God is using him, through the working of his spirit, to write letters That will be like the bread for the church. That will feed souls until the Lord returns. And so he writes Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Isn't it interesting? This letter was written a little less than 2,000 years ago. And yet we hold in our hands today an English copy and we're studying it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And you see, he sees himself, his role, as directly related to his relationship with Christ. So It's interesting, when you look at the New Testament letters that Paul wrote, uh, many times he refers to himself as a servant or a bondservant or a slave of Christ. In the book of Philemon, he calls himself a prisoner of Christ. But he's saying, I do so because it's the will of God. God offers life. You see that? According to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. When you and I place our faith in him, we literally participate in his the death, the resurrection, and the new life that is found in Christ. This mystical union is so great. Like it says in Ephesians three seventeen, that Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. Or Colossians 1, it says that it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. What makes you and I a Christian is that we've been united with Christ. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians that we are a new creature in Christ. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things Have come. This is the life that Jesus offers you and I. Remember what Jesus said, John 10 10? The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I come to offer you life. Life both abundant and eternal. If you want life, life even in the face of death, life eternal and full, life with God found in only one relationship, Jesus Christ. And Paul sees all of his life as my job is to tell people about the promise of life in Christ. And I want you to know that to be in Christ means that you're trusting in him. You identify with him. You see yourself as under his protection and his authority. That Christ is king and Lord of your hearts. And you see yourself as united with him forever. And this relationship with Jesus. It changes how you and I go about our lives and how we live out our roles. It's interesting. As Christians, what we do and how we do it is to be an outworking of who we are. What we do and how we do it is to be an outworking of who we are. You see, our identity isn't in our role. Our identity is in our relationship with Christ. And yet, so often, people find their identity in what they're doing and in their role. And they kind of identify, well, I'm this and I do this. This is my role. There's nothing wrong with having roles. In fact, God gives you these roles, just like God gave him a role as an apostle by the will of God. But your role doesn't define you. Your relationship with Christ does. And this relationship with Jesus changes how you go about your role. And so, that's true of you and I. In your family, in our church, in our society, you have roles, but your role is given to you by God to reflect your relationship with Jesus. So no matter what you're doing, whether you're a parent or a pastor, whether you are an engineer or a hairstylist, whether you're a private in the army, whether you're a president, or whether you're working in a pet store somewhere, you need to know that you've got a role, and that is to represent Christ. You represent the life of Jesus to the people that you're around. It is the will of God. It's how he functions. And so you see, the promise of life in Christ, you know what it does? It transforms how we see our roles. What is it that you're doing during the week? That is a capacity that God has given you to represent him well. And it's our relationship with Christ, this promise of life in Christ that allows us to see our roles differently. There's something else that I want to point out to you about this promise of life in Christ, how it transforms us. Relationship with Jesus transforms how we develop our friendships. Look at this. You see that in verse 2? He says, to Timothy, my beloved son. When he refers to beloved, this is a term used for those who are in relationship with God the Father through Christ and those who... ...who are fellow Christians, those who are in the family of God. They are partakers of the promise of life. They are dearly loved. You see, love is to permeate the body because love is actually the character of God. And he says, Timothy, my beloved son... Now, Timothy wasn't actually a biological son of Paul. As we trace uh, church, the early church, you see the Apostle Paul on his first missionary journey... ...going and he goes to a place called Leicester, he proclaims the gospel... It is believed that this Timothy that he's writing to actually has become a Christian on this first missionary journey. Perhaps he actually heard the gospel gospel from Paul himself. We do know this in Acts chapter 16, that when Paul makes his second trip into this area, he encounters, when he goes to Lystra, this young man named Timothy. We know this about Timothy from Acts chapter 16. His mom and his Uh, grandmother, are from Jewish descent. His father is called a Greek. He's a Gentile. And it's interesting, uh, in 2 Timothy, did you know that in verse 5 in chapter 1, Timothy's mother and his grandmother are mentioned by name? You see that? Lois, your mother and, and, uh, excuse me, Lois, your grandmother and your mother Eunice. And they are noted for having a sincere, genuine, authentic faith in Christ. But for Timothy's dad, all we know is that he is this Greek. There is no record that, that Timothy's dad had a strong influence or really any involvement in his life. If Timothy's dad had a spiritual influence, and that's a big if, if that was the case, it likely was a negative one. To try to get Timothy to just kind of go along with worshiping Roman gods, which were really Greek gods but the Romans just adopted and changed their names. But when Paul comes on the second missionary journey and he encounters this young man who is spoken well of by all the brethren in these two different cities, Paul wants this man to go with him. And friends, that's what happens. Relationship with Jesus changes how you see people and how friendships develop. For Paul, he understands that life and ministry are always better together. It's kind of like this. When you've got like-minded individuals that come together and work and minister together, you've got a synergism, like a one plus one equals three kind of effect. Ministry is always better together. And that's what Paul does. He takes this young man and says, listen, we're going to do ministry together. I'm going to pour into you, and I'm going to give you opportunity. And I want you to know, just on a personal note, I am the recipient and the beneficiary of this kind of relationship. I believe I'm the product of godly men who poured into me and gave me opportunities. Going all the way back as a brand new Christian at the University of Oregon. They gave me opportunities, they coached me, and they gave me opportunities to to invest and engage in the ministry. And there were plenty of mistakes. And it could have always gone better. But they were there to coach me and correct me, encourage me. And friends, that's what happens. You develop friendships with people because the promise of life in Christ changes how we engage one another. And so let me, you know, just kind of give you a, some highlights about the relationships, a discipleship relationship that you find. How how Paul built friendships. And I'm just going to give you some highlights here from the New Testament. There's a, a, There are four characteristics that you see in the Apostle Paul that really seem to develop rich, deep, meaningful, purposeful relationships. The first thing is he was relational. And if you're going to have friendships that go beyond the superficial, you've got to learn to be relational, friendly, kind, smile on occasion. Uh, you don't have to be an extrovert, but you do have to know how to have a person that you care about and you can communicate that. You've got to be relational. Let me so- show you something else that Paul had. Paul was not only relational, he was also intentional. If you're going to develop Significant relationships, deep friendships, you have to be intentional. you got to intentionally try to get to know someone. You have to try to connect. You ask good questions. You want to know about a person's life, about their family, about their career, about their current status of their soul. You intentionally want to know them, but you also intentionally want to involve them. If you're in a capacity to give them an opportunity to join you in whatever work you're doing, do so. And you engage them, and you, and you ask about their situations and the challenges that they are going through. And you intentionally involve. But if you're going to build friendships, take a few lessons from the Apostle Paul. You want to be relational? You want to be intentional? Let me give you a third characteristic. You want to be insightful. You want to be willing to share how your experiences have come in to teach you some life lessons that you can pass on to others. You want to show, like, your joys. You've got to have a little bit of transparency and your hurts, your failures and your successes. You want to be insightful how God's word comes into play in your life. And you want to talk with them. And as, you, as you're trying to be insightful, you're going to find that as you develop relationships with people, sometimes your friend might be going off in the wrong direction. You don't like, man, they're just This is not going to go well. No, you care about them, and so you actually engage, and you say, you know, I I happen to notice that you keep saying this. Have you considered this? When you see them going in the wrong direction, you want to find a gentle way to correct and to bring truth to bear. So you might want to say, you know, I can tell you've been hurt by this situation or this person, and I can understand why you might want to behave this way, but have you considered this? And then you go ahead and you talk about How truth comes into play into life. You see, if you're going to develop significant relationships, you've got to be insightful. And then the fourth thing about Paul, and I'll leave you with this, is that Paul was inspirational. To develop significant friendships, somehow you and I have to be encouraging. The other person needs to know that you not only have them in your heart and you're committed to them, but that you're for them and you want them to succeed and you're praying for them. You're connected and you're committed. And friends, this is so desperately needed in the church today. What has happened is we've got these generational gaps, and the church is the body of Christ. We're all fixed and focused on the head, but all we keep doing is we like, create like little divisions, and, and pretty soon, how the body grows, where we're connected and there's this interface, and interchange of ideas and encouragement and loving one another and serving one another, it all starts going away. I will tell you, The younger generation desperately needs an older generation that has walked with the Lord to encourage them and to engage. And a younger generation needs to turn around and engage those that have gone before. There are so many things that we can learn and we'll be so much stronger when we're better together. Pastor Mark Young uh, talks of a scene that took place at a men's retreat that he was at. About 30 and 40 guys in their church, they were on this men's retreat. And in this room, and at this particular time, they were talking about the joys and sharing some of the tru- troubles and struggles and the deep aches of their soul. And this is what he says: There is was a young man there named Jason. And he just sat in his chair. His face is buried in his hand and his head occasionally rising to gasp a breath as he sobbed, why didn't he want me? I don't understand why my dad didn't want me. Why didn't he want me, man? What's wrong with me? None of the other men in the room had the answer to this question. But most of us knew the problem. Young Jason was crying out for the acceptance and affirmation of his father. He was saying, am I such a defect that I am unlovable as a son and as a man? What happened next was absolutely beautiful and unscripted. Phil, an older man in the group, he, he got out of his seat walked straight over to Jason. He embraced him, and in a loud voice, he said to him, Jason, I'll be your dad, and you're my son. From that day forward, Phil was involved in Jason's life as a surrogate father. Their relationship with one another deepened as the years passed. Although Phil didn't pay for Jason's college tuition or his room and board, he was present to pray with Jason, take him to lunch, listen to his struggles, and share his life wisdom with him. During my, one of my last conversations with Phil. Before he died. We talked about this relationship with Jason. At one point. He lifted his head. And with a passionate conviction said. You know Jason is my son. I nodded in the affirmative and said. I know. Well Phil became a tangible expression. Of our Heavenly Father's love. For a young man. Who felt unwanted. And unworthy of his natural father's love. Friends, this kind of engagement and involvement. Older man to a younger man. Older woman to a younger woman. So needed. You see, in the body of Christ, when we got the promise of life, our relationships should be different, can be different, and will be different when we engage life in Christ and we're willing to engage one another. After all, that is what the church is all about. It's the promise of life that is found in Christ. And right here in this very introduction to the book of Second Timothy, don't you see it? It's the promise of life in Christ Jesus where he, Paul sees Timothy and says, you know what? You're my beloved son. Even my final letter is written to you. You see, the promise of life in Christ, it changes how we develop our relationships. And there's one other thing that I want to point out about this life that we have in Christ and how it transforms us. It transforms how we live our lives. Did you see this in verse 2? He says, To Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So often when we come to an introduction, we just kind of like Paul, Timothy, and we move on. And yet, do you see what Paul is communicating? You see, all that we really need is found in Christ. And notice what he's saying. I want you, Timothy, to know grace, the riches of relationship with Christ, the love that comes from knowing Him, the spiritual resources that are found in fellowship with the Savior. I want you to know mercy, the idea that there is a deep sense of affection and compassion to one who is facing difficulty and a desire to meet this need, to help you through your trial and your trouble. Grace, mercy, and peace. The idea of security and rest It comes from knowing that God is both good and that he's sovereign. You see, grace, mercy, and peace, where are they found? They're found from God the Father. He's a good, good Father. And Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, all that I am and all that I need is found in all that Christ is. And we need grace mercy, and peace. But I tell you, this life has a way of just keeping us pulled down. It is so easy to lose a vertical perspective, to actually go to the Father and the Son for grace, mercy, and peace. I mean, I I see this, and I know that grace, mercy, and peace are found in Christ, but You've got all the troubles and all the struggles and all the responsibilities, and you know what it's like. And they literally they just keep kind of like pulling you down, and I find it's especially bad when you have no margin in your schedule. It's just like you're going from one thing after another. One big decision, you've got to deal with this. Next thing you know you're turning around and you're facing this situation. Next thing you come to home and you've got the daily drama there, and what happens is we miss out on grace, mercy, and peace because we are so in the here and now on the horizontal And what this introduction to classic Christianity that Paul writes is saying, listen, I want you to know grace, mercy, and peace. And it's not found in your circumstances. It's found from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. If you and I don't find regular times for our soul to be refreshed by God's grace, mercy, and peace, what happens is we just stay fixated on the problems and the situations that we face. Temptation becomes very alluring when you really do not spend time knowing the Father's grace, mercy, and peace. And yet that's what Jesus offers us. It's found in the promise of life. You know, grace, mercy, and peace, they are like to our soul like sleep is to our body. Don't you like sleep? I mean, sleep is so good. I mean, things are always so much better after a good night's sleep. And you and I know that we need see- sleep. We like it. We understand its benefits. Uh, in case you're wondering, like, how much sleep you should be getting, the National Sleep Foundation, that'd be a good outfit to work for, right? The National Sleep Foundation maintains that an adult needs, ready for this, eight to nine hours. Okay. I can tell that some of you are like, you've got to be kidding. And they also, its it's been well-researched, that if you don't get enough sleep, some bad things can happen to you. Now, um, let me just talk to you a little bit about sleep. If you're a child, like a, a newborn infant, you need 18 hours. But then it starts diminishing as you grow older. But if you're not getting enough sleep, you know what happens? There's just a, I was doing some research on this. There's a whole host of problems. See if any of these sound familiar. Cardiovascular disease, blurred vision, aching muscles, clinical depression, color blindness. your immune system is weakened, dizziness, dark c- circles under your eyes, fainting, impatience, headache, tremors, irritability, memory lapses, or loss. You can make yourself sick. And a lack of sleep not only affects you in every way, it affects how you behave. The National Highway Traffic Sa- Safety Administration site there are over a hundred thousand traffic accidents each year because of fatigue and drowsiness. You see, a lack of sleep has a lot of negative implications for your life, right? And we know this. I mean, I didn't tell you anything new, but yet we still put ourselves in situations like, well, I'm just not going to get enough sleep and I'm going to try to make it work. And yet we see that it's not working. And there are some people that actually intentionally try to go without it. Now, this is crazy, but in 1965, there was an 18-year-old high school student by the name of Randy Gardner, and uh, for a high school science project, he did this. He went without sleep for 264 hours. To help you do the math, that's 11 days and night. Okay, well, so he tries to do for 264 hours. And, of course, the Guinness Book of World Records They recorded that. And the record stood until there was a young man on May 25th, 2007, a guy by the name of Tony Wright. He really wanted to do something with his life. He wanted to beat the world record on how long you could stay awake. Lo and behold, there he is. He's being patted and congratulated by friends and family. He stayed awake for a total of 11 days and 11 nights. I don't know how you do that. I don't know if you, like, take ice baths. I mean, what do you do on, like, day five? Do you start eating chili peppers and Tabasco sauce to to just try to stay awake? But he did it. Now, in case you're like, I want to make a name for myself, Guinness Book of World Records no longer keeps track of this anymore because of how harmful it is to people to try to do this. You see, you need sleep. If you don't get sleep, it has some negative effects on your body. It's going to affect your relationships. In fact, it may already be doing so. But just as important as sleep is, if not far more so, is grace, mercy, and peace from the Father. If you're not regularly taking it in, like you regularly getting sleep, friends, it's showing up everywhere in your attitude, your approach, your relationships, how you're going about your work, how you see life, your whole perspective on the future. It's all going to be off because you are in deprivation of grace, mercy, and peace. And so, friends, I want to tell you, this introduction... It's like the an introduction to life. And so, could we do it this week? Let's make sure that we're getting our fill of grace, mercy, and peace. And let me just tell you how to do that. You've got to be proactive and take just at least a little bit of time to pray. You have to take time to read the scriptures. Take time to maybe read just this book, maybe just even one chapter, but to develop a pattern of learning from God and having your heart reoriented by His Word. And you also need to take time to think about what has been written. You see, substitutes will never do. You and I, we need the real thing. And that's what's in Second Timothy. Just to kind of show you this book that we're going to be covering, its theme is Christ-Centered Living is at the heart of classic Christianity. To give you just a basic breakdown, chapter one tells us that Christ-centered living comes from knowing the treasure of the gospel. Chapter two talks about the transformation by grace. Chapter 3 tells us the troubles of our times. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 14 through 4 or 5, talks about the truth of God's Word. And then the rest of the book, 4, 6 through 22, talks about the triumph of Christ's life. This book is written so that you and I will keep Christ at the center of our lives. And so I'm going to put out a very deeply personal challenge to you. Read 2 Timothy regularly. Let this book... Just like simmer in your soul. I'll tell you the idea of multiple readings of one particular book of the Bible. Uh, I'll tell you how I got started on this. I'm a brand new Christian at the University of Oregon, a guy who was very instrumental in me coming to the faith. And my first disciple, my first Bible study leader, is a young man, a college student by the name of Doug Gardner. And we're having our Bible study at the Student Union, and I'm in an introductory Bible study. I know nothing really about the Bible. And we're doing the the fill-in-the-blank Bible studies, you know, where happy answers are Jesus, you know. And so that's that's the one I'm in. And we finish that. And then one time Doug comes into our Bible study and he says, we're going to do something different on this next Bible study. Something that I've been doing in the Bible study I'm in. And it has really completely changed the way I see Scripture. We're going to take a book of the Bible and we're going to read it a whole bunch of times. And I'm thinking, like, what's a whole bunch? He says, we're going to read it 50 times. Like, no. What? Reading something 50? I've never read anything 50 times. Not the back of a box of cereal. Nothing 50 times. And I'm like, oh, this, this isn't going to be a lot of fun. But we all agreed that we would do this. And I'll tell you, Second Timothy became home base for me. I didn't really know much about the Bible, but what I did, I knew from this book. It became kind of like my whole orientation. I saw how everything in life related to Second Timothy. All of a sudden, I saw a flow. And this became home base for me. And friends, I'll tell you, this is my go-to book. When I'm going through struggles, when I'm going through trials, when I'm taking like a personal retreat time to reorient and, and try to ask God what my next steps are, this is my go-to book. And so I'm going to put this challenge out to you. Will you join me in reading Second Timothy regularly? And what it does, this book keeps pointing us back to Jesus. It's like Psalm 34, verse 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And so, you friends, I'll tell you, Jesus really changes lives. Taste and see. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for just this amazing book. And we ask, Lord, that you would use Second Timothy to literally bring transformation and Christ-centeredness to our lives. And for someone who has come here today who's never trusted in Christ, would they, now that you have their full attention, just pray with me and say, Lord, I turn from self and my sin and I put my faith and trust in Jesus, a Savior and the Lord of my life. And Lord, for all of us, we need to drink deep, deeply of the wells of grace, mercy, peace. So fill our souls that we might reflect your life. And know the goodness of Jesus all of our days. This we pray in Christ's name.